0: Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. For those listening in another venue, at some other time, we began with Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We have had read to us the record of Balaam's perversity in Numbers chapter 22, verses 20 through 35. We have had read to us the song of Moses in his warning to Israel, of what would happen to them for rebellion in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 1 through 20. And we have heard the Lord Jesus Christ warning the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? We have before us 2 Peter chapter 2, and we've made our way through verse 12, and we want to cover as many verses in the second half of this chapter as we are able. And they are a severe warning against false teachers and the warning of those that would fall victim, fall prey to their false gospel. Let me remind you briefly of this epistle. We are told plainly in the first verse of the first epistle that it was written to five provinces in what we now know as Western or Middle, Mid-Turkey. And they were Christians and they were Jews. We have that taught to us in several places through that first epistle. We know the second epistle is written to the same people because the first verse of chapter three tells us so when it says this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. In 2 Peter 1.10, they are called the elect. In 1 Peter 1.2, they are called the elect. These are elect, converted Jews in the territory where Paul was responsible for the churches, but Peter is writing them, and as he concludes in chapter 5 of the first epistle, he is reaffirming these Jews in the gospel Paul had taught them, that it was the apostolic gospel, and that he... The apostle to the Jews out of Jerusalem was in full agreement, though he was now located in Babylon, according to the last verses of the first epistle. As we look at the second epistle, the first chapter lent itself to four divisions. Verses 1 through 4 describe the great practical benefits we have by gospel conversion and strength of the Holy Ghost and blessing and power in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew just praying for us reminded us of the importance of having our first love of the Lord Jesus Christ. The warning that we had read to us from Revelation chapter two was similar in that the church at Thyatira, though known for their works, were to continue in what they already had. But these first four verses of the first chapter are are special and precious, and they are based on the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in verse 2, and it says in verse 3, it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, you have everything you need to live a godly life. There is no excuse for not living a godly life. And when we face the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Either in this world, or the next, or both. And he calls into question our lives. We shall give an account of every way in which we've lived before him. Every thought, every idle word, we shall give an account of in that day. And we want to be convicted about it. But we have, you have the power. It's been given to you. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And here's, here's the vehicle through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. The more we know of Christ, we see exceeding great and precious promises, and these promises help us to be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, don't forget these words, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is a description of those that are truly converted. And we're going to need this description coming up in some verses at the end of chapter two. But here's the description. And it's a wonderful four verses. Divine power has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the great, the exceeding great and precious promises lead us out of the corruption that is in this world through lust. If we will embrace them and obey them, if we will set our affection on things above and not on things on the earth, we can be saved from this world in a practical conversion way. Verses 5-11 through describe the eight things that Christians ought to have, and they're not the only things, but they are the list of eight that God the Holy Spirit chose for this particular section of Scripture, and that we ought to give all diligence to having them in our lives. Verse 5 begins with the words, all diligence. Verse 10 says, brethren, give diligence... To make your calling and election sure, these eight things ought to be in your life. And they start with faith. But they do not end with faith. And there is no confidence in faith. The devils believe and tremble. The confidence comes in adding to faith the seven things that follow. And it tells us in the last part of verse 10, if we do these things, we shall never fall for an entrance. For so, on this basis, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So great diligence is to be put forth on the part of the elect. Those who accuse us of saying, well, once you're elect, it doesn't matter how you live, because if you're elect, you're going to heaven. And if you're not elect, you're going to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. But that isn't how the Bible presents the gospel. The Bible presents the gospel giving all diligence to these things, to make that election sure, because how do you know you're one of God's elect without this effort? It also shows us in verse 9 that there are some that lack these eight things. They lack fruitfulness in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are blind. They cannot see afar off. They have forgotten that eternal perspective. And it says they have forgotten that they were purged from their old sins. Jesus Christ, having satisfied God, should change us. Right. The forgiveness that the Bible describes that is higher than our forgiving as heaven is above the earth should change us. But some aren't changed, as the ninth verse describes. But they have no evidence of eternal life, and we have none for them because they haven't made their calling and election sure. Verses 12 through 15 are four verses where Peter says, as long as I am alive, I am going to remind you of these important things. And that is bearing fruitfulness in verses 5 through 11 to make your election sure on the basis that divine power has already given you everything you need to live a successful and victorious life, embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and delighting in Him. Verses 16 through 21 tell us, that though Peter had seen the, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ and Moses and Elijah with him, there was a more sure word of prophecy that proved Jesus is coming again. Our Savior is risen, He's reigning, and He's returning. And we shall all give an account to Him. And so the chapter ends with a verse that tells us how we got Scripture. Verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't men that sat down. The 40 writers of Scripture did not decide that they would write a religious book. God inspired them. The Holy Spirit moved them. Their hearts dictated words to them. And they wrote those words down with ink on paper, as Jeremiah and Baruch explain in the book of Jeremiah. And that is our Bible. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so that's chapter 1. But, look at chapter 2, sets itself separate from chapter 1, and chapter 3 is going to be a separate subject yet again, and that's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to burn up this world and to give us a new heaven and a new earth. But, in distinction... In contrast to the holy men of God of the last verse of chapter one, but there were false prophets also alongside these holy men of God. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies. They're going to bring in heresies that deserve God's judgment. They're going to turn God's grace into lasciviousness. And I will repeat those words a few times today because that's Jude's commentary on a damnable heresy. And that's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, meaning you can live any way you want. No, you cannot. You're going to give an account for every variation to the Word of God. You're going to give an account to every variation from the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. The lion hath roared, who will not fear. The Lord hath spoken, who can but prophesy. We have these words before us. It says about these false teachers, that many shall follow their pernicious ways. In verse 2, many shall follow their pernicious ways. And there we have the first distinction between the false teachers and their dupes the false teachers and their victims, the false teachers and their prey. And we're going to see that, and it's going to build to a crescendo in the last five verses of this chapter where the distinction between the reprobate, false teachers, and the waylaid, unstable, immature, lazy, and slothful Christians that are taken advantage of by them are shown more most clearly. And so that's where we're headed. I want you to notice here that these men are going to be judged It's called swift destruction in verse 1. It's called judgment no longer lingering and damnation no longer slumbering in verse 3. In verse 12, it says they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. In verse 9, it says they are reserved unto the day of judgment to be punished. So there we are. Now, as we were learning about these men... They are compared to the wicked angels. They are compared to the wicked men in the days of the flood. And they are compared to the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 4, 5, and 6. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are part of a very long sentence where Peter, by the Holy Ghost, is explaining that God did not spare the angels that sinned. God did not spare the old world. The entire earth was wiped out. If you don't think about that, and if that does not affect your life, you are willingly ignorant of one of the most important events in world history. The things that you do think about, like a constitutional congress, like Christopher Columbus discovering the North American continent, which he didn't, and any other thing of history is irrelevant compared to the flood. God spared not the old world. The whole world was drowned and suffocated, irregardless of sex or age, position, or any other distinctive that men measure themselves by. And then verse 6, The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were turned into ashes, and yet the righteous are delivered, as Lot was pulled out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah against his own will, and pulled all the way to the mountains against his own will. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly, and to reserve the unjust on the day of judgment to be punished. These are severe, world-changing events that the Holy Spirit puts before our eyes again. The Holy Spirit knows that we have the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis 6-9 through telling us about the flood. The book of Genesis chapters 18 and 19 telling us about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But still, the apostle brings them up, and he has said, as long as I am alive, I am going to remind you of these things. And so we need to be reminded. As we proceeded, we came to verse 10, where it says about these wicked false teachers, chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. There are two main categories of sin that the Bible tells us about these false teachers. Sexual uncleanness, meaning adultery, fornication, sexual sins, sodomy, as Jude pulls into the equation, going after strange flesh, and rebellion against civil government. Two categories that the Holy Spirit himself singles out chiefly them that do one or both of these two things. So we had verses 10 through 12 describing their sin against civil government and that's opening their trap to say disrespectful things about rulers. And Lord, save us from that. That is one of the things, that is one of the sacrifices this church has given the Lord and the Lord has blessed us for it. This is one of the salvations and deliverances for which we should be thankful that God has arrested and changed our perspective on civil government. It doesn't mean that things in Washington are better. It means that we have a different perspective and we humble ourselves before God's Word knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge and it's not the vigilance of citizens that preserve nations. That's right. It's the vigilance of saints that preserve nations. Abraham didn't ask God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because of ten vigilant citizens He asked God to spare Sodom on the basis of ten righteous souls. And that's what we need, most of all. And so our perspective and our practices have changed. And we thank the Lord. And so that was covered in verses 10 through 12. And we've been over that already. And now we get to verse 13. And what the apostle is going to do is move back toward that other one, the lust of uncleanness, and he's going to bring up sexual sins and he's going to go take that under the word adultery in this particular passage and then go forward. And so we are at verse 13, and I've taken a number of minutes to get us back to where we were three weeks ago because we took two Sundays off, and I hope that perspective has you ready to hear the lion. The lion hath roared. There is judgment throughout these verses. Severe judgment. And the judgment is against the false teachers, and the false teachers, as a general rule, are reprobates because the passage is going to tell us that. But the the problem is, and the reason there's a warning, because you're not going to save a reprobate. The reason is because that there are unstable souls that are beguiled by them. There are those that want to live a carnal life that want to go to such a church so they can live a carnal existence. But the Word of God is against that. The Lord has told us that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We see these false teachers at a distance because we can see them on the internet. We can see them on television. We see them at a distance. They will eventually get to us and they will become they will get among us they will arise to speak heresies among us there must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest 1st Corinthians 11:19 the apostle paul in his last face to face meeting with the elders at ephesus warned them took the elders looking them in the face of your own number shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves It will come. Let's apply everything that is said to us. I may mention a name or two, but let's apply everything to us. When it says in verse 13, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, instead of thinking about false teachers being rejected in the great day of judgment, which the Bible plainly describes in Matthew chapter 7, when they're going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? We know that that's true. But while we're thinking upon that, let's think upon this. Shall receive the reward of unrighteousness that if you live unrighteously, there will be a reward in your life. God will judge you. He will chasten you if you're a child of God. And we we want to take this and embrace it as much as we can, though remembering the intent is against false teachers. And so I read to you, Five verses, beginning at verse 13. "...and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls." And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. Following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor. Who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water. Clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. And amen. Verse 13. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. We know the context. These are false teachers. These false teachers that were introduced with the but in verse 1 are going to receive the reward of unrighteousness. There is a reward for unrighteousness. And the reward is not a trophy. The reward is punishment. The word reward is being used as payment. Payment for unrighteousness. They shall receive it. It had just said of them in verse 12 that they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. That kind of corruption that goes against authority will turn around and destroy them, and I've tried to teach that to you for many years. What goes around comes around, if you don't want to grant authority to those that are in Washington, DC, that have far greater authority over you than you do over your family, then don't be surprised if your family rebels against you. What goes around comes around. The Bible term is whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. There is a payment that God makes for those that live unrighteously. The Bible is filled with if-then conditions for God's mercy. Look, if you can hold your hand always at Second Peter 2, let's look at Leviticus chapter 26 and remind ourselves how God has made His word conditional for blessings and curses. Leviticus chapter 26 Deuteronomy 28 is another chapter, but we're, we're turning to Leviticus 26. There are a couple of chapters that are built on if-then constructions that your conduct determines God's reward of good or God's reward of evil in your life. Right. Do you remember from Amos chapter 3, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? No, that's impossible. Evil in your life, evil in a city, evil in a church is not happen chance. It is not coincidence. It is not fate. It is the Lord. Amen. And so in the day of adversity or in the day of prosperity, we should consider both. Right. And look to Him and let Him help us examine ourselves. Leviticus 26 verse 2. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then. Now there are ten of these in this chapter. And if you want a little Bible study, it's to go through Leviticus 26 and find the if-then constructions. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then, and if you read the following verses, it's just a long list of wonderful blessings that we should all want in our lives. If, then. We come over to verse 14. If, but if ye will not hearken, now look what we have. If ye will not, then look what will happen. And if ye shall despise in verse 15, or if your soul abhor in verse 15, I also will do this unto you, verse 16. I will even appoint over you terror. And he goes in his list, verse 18. And if he will not yet for all this hearken, verse 21. And if he walk contrary, it's a wonderful chapter. It's got 10 of these ifs in it. The last one being in the middle of verse 41. And you can find the 10. And so it tells us that there's a reward. There's a reward for unrighteousness. The most foolish thought you can ever have is that you can get away with compromising righteousness. And our flesh is prone to convince us of that every day of our lives. But it's not true. It's impossible. There's a God that sees everything, and He remembers everything. And He's a holy judge, and He will bring judgment, as I showed with those if-then constructions there in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 is just like it. The Bible would say, prepare to meet thy God and warn us about living holy lives. Many will follow these false teachers and that's the horrible thing. And that's why we oppose them for what they do to God's congregations. So we're back at 2 Peter 2 and verse 13 and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness. Those false teachers will not get away with their wickedness, with their pernicious doctrines, with their damnable heresies, with their violence in word against government, with their carnality in sexual matters. They'll not get away with it. We must remember that. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. A further description of these false teachers. They are those that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, which brings a sentence to a close. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. These people are so set in their sinful living patterns and they are so bold in them they're doing things in the daytime that used to be only done at night. There has been a change in our nation. Do you know that? For those of us that are older, of what was done 50 years ago, or what is done in the rural areas compared to what's done in urban areas, there's been a great change in our nation. The boldness of sinners today is all over the front page. It's all over the internet. It's all over the television. In the past, what did you get to watch? Was it Lassie or Rin Tin Tin tonight for the family? What's the one about Beaver? Leave it to Beaver? Sorry, I never got to watch Leave it to Beaver. It was one of the decades we didn't have a television um, growing up. The things that have changed, incredible change in 50 years' time. Because now they are so bold in their wickedness, and this is describing false teachers... They are so bold, they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. The terminology that the Spirit uses here is to magnify the boldness of their crimes and their rebellion. And there's two main categories. Flippant about authority and flippant about sex. You can go ahead and live any way you want. Go ahead and make fun of government. Let's crack jokes about it. Let's crack jokes about sex. And go ahead and commit adultery and fornication. Lord, save us from these two categories. They are so given to their lusts that they don't wait for the dark. Proverbs chapter 7 assumes that the name nightclub the name nightclub is appropriate that the things that go on in a nightclub should only be done at night because people don't want to do those things during the day. But now they do them during the day. They party day and night. And they make no distinction. What whores once wore only at night is now common for women in the day. The change in the dress of women the tr- the change in the dress of christian women that are under these pastors that allow so much liberty we believe in christian liberty we believe in the liberty that jesus christ died on the cross and so we are freed from the binding constraints and condemnation of the law of moses we believe in christian liberty that things that god doesn't care about we don't care about but we do we do have something to say against liberty that you can live any way you want because god loves you just the way you are That is not true. That is not true. We deny that liberty. We do not have that liberty. And that's what this chapter is all about. If you were to jump ahead right now and look at verse 19, here's their gospel while they promise them liberty. These pastors promise liberty. The old-fashioned religion is no more. The Lord's given us a new thing. The Spirit has opened up great growth in our churches today that you can live without those rules and without that Bible thumping and without that hell fire and brimstone preaching of the past. They promised them liberty while well, they themselves are the servants of corruption. That's right. And that corruption is they are so bad off now that they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. They don't wait for the ordinary restraint that used to take place about some of these sins. What does it mean to riot? It doesn't mean throwing of cocktails at buildings, but it means lascivious partying. And that's the word they use for it. Partying, casual sex, whatever. The prodigal, according to the Bible in Luke 15, the prodigal son wasted his inheritance with riotous living with harlots. In Leviticus 15, In verse 13, Christians are to be sober and not riot. Look at Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. We're to be different, very different. And the more we're different, the more others are going to make fun of us. The more they're going to ridicule you and the church you go to when there are churches experiencing great growth that are allowing much more freedom. And they'll try to convince you of the validity of the freedom by the facts of the growth. But if you read the Bible, the facts of the growth prove that the church is wrong. Right. It is a, it is a wide gate and broad way that leads to destruction. It is a narrow gate and a, a straight gate and a narrow way that leads to life. And that straight is a straight jacketed life. And if your life is not straight jacketed, if your thoughts aren't straight jacketed and your mouth is not straight jacketed, And, and your life, your feet, where you go, your eyes, what you watch, your fingers on the keyboard and your finger on the mouse, what you click. It should be straight jacketed because there's few that find it and we want to be among the few by God's grace. And so we look at Romans chapter 13, and it says in verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let's throw away all these things that false teachers revel in, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And look at those six sins that we got rioting, drunkenness, chambering. That's the casual sex is chambering be, being referenced by the place where it usually occurs is in a chamber and wantonness. That's unbridled lust. Not in strife and envying. Notice it brings in the sins of the heart right along with the sins of the flesh, either what goes in the mouth or what you use your sexual organs for. The Lord condemns it all right there. And what are we supposed to do in distinction? But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. How do we put them on? We invite him into our hearts not to get saved, but for fellowship. We embrace Him in the word of God. We look for Him. We make Him the most important person in our life. We pray to seek His face. We are willing to lose anything else for the gain of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. We run to him, we hide in him. We commune with him. We seek Him. This is what we ought to do, as opposed to rioting. Back to 13 of Second Peter two. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. You know the boring, calm, dead atmosphere of rural America yesteryear. It's pretty close to being right. You see, but those words you just used for it, those words I just used for it are what the world today thinks of it. The boring, calm, and dead atmosphere of rural America. I can remember as recently as 20 years ago taking Sherry on a vacation to a resort in North Georgia, 40 miles north of Atlanta. 40 miles north of Atlanta. And because we get into habits in the city... We think that the whole world functions that way. And so one night I said, we, need to, we needed to go into town. Let's go into town and grab something. Well, it was after 6 o'clock. There wasn't a thing open. There was nothing open after 6 o'clock because they worked in that town. They were farmers. They got up early and they worked the land. And <laughs> there was nothing open. And we were shocked. And, you know, it's still just... Ticking away in my head as to the change that's taken place, and part of it is techno sins that I preached this congregation on a Wednesday night of how our lives have been altered. They went to they got up early in the morning to attack the day. You know, they weren't hung over because they had been out eating and drinking heavily the night before. Everything was shut down. It was time to go home, gather your wits, and get in bed by eight o'clock because you were gonna get up at four o'clock. Just a different lifestyle but that lifestyle doesn't lend itself to the things that happen at night. But in in conjunction with our passage, it gets so bad sometimes with false teachers that those things happen during the daytime just as well. And so they do. Just a reminder of how we set the stage for our families, how we set set the stage for our marriages, how we set the stage for our personal habits. Let's make them as godly as we can. And I'm not saying you have to go to bed at 6 p.m., So don't, don't email me about it because that's not what I'm saying. But let's, let's be sober about every part of our lives and examine it in light of the trends of our society and the trends of false pulpits and what they say. We don't care what they believe or practice. Lord help us. I gave you a lot to think about in the techno sins. I waited a long time to present that study to you. And I hope that we will remember that there is in our house technological changes that never existed before in the history of this world that bring that bring Satan's sin and lust and pleasure right up there to one click away of anything in all different kinds of ways. That's a good review to make and our webmaster is working with me on designing something for our home page where we will rotate some of the better. More useful sermons and studies that have been done over the years, so that every time you approach the home page, it will have something fresh and new to grab your attention. And that's one of them that needs to be there. Because we face an onslaught of technological advances that bring sin up close and into our homes like never before, into our pockets. You know, these, everything is right there. You know, I'm still back with this mouse. The whole, I had statistics presented to me this week that I'm I'm already old-fashioned with a high-powered computer because people don't use the computer anymore. We're in the minority. They're all on this thing, and everything is right there. It doesn't make that thing wrong. I just have a, I just have a steep and long learning curve, so I let my wife master the thing. I don't want that device in my pocket. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. You know, the nightclub, do you know what pains and what fear of shame you had to go to in the past? Men, to see a gyrating naked woman? Do you know what hours of the day they functioned? Do you know what part of town they were in? Lord, help us. You know, just to, just to, bring up, just to use the common, the phrase techno-sins. I'm a nut. I'm an absolute nut for using the words techno-sins. Lord, help us. Yes. Okay, we had a period. Peter uses some long sentences. Let's not say that Paul doesn't. Peter's going to say at the end of this book that Paul has some pretty hard sentences <laughs> that are hard to be understood. Spots they are in blemishes spots they are. If you were, if you were paying attention when we had read to us Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 4 through 6, it mentioned the spot of sinful men is not the spot of God's children. We are a different color than they are. But there are spots that creep into churches and we want our church to be spotless. Spots they are in blemishes. We don't want any blemishes. We want to be a pure and spotless virgin bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm jealous over you with the godly jealousy and I'm jealous over me with the godly jealousy so that I can give you the proper example of godliness and holiness. We want to be that chaste virgin presented to Jesus Christ as Jesus says, without spot and without blemish. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, He died for us that we would be such a spouse. We are His bride. We should not be ashamed at all to think of ourselves as a woman. We want to be pure. We want to be dedicated, devoted, and loyal to Him and to Him only. Remembering that being a friend of the world, just flirting with the world, is considered adultery by Him against Him. Because we are flirting with His enemy. Can you imagine something so heinous as a woman committing adultery with the enemy of her husband? We do that when we befriend the world. And these false teachers are doing it all the time. They're the MCs for it. They're masters of ceremony for getting Christians to play and befriend the world and thus commit spiritual adultery against Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us from that. Spots they are and blemishes. Pure religion before God and the Father. Can you remember it with me? James one twenty seven. Pure religion before God and the Father is this. That we, this is the one we always quote, that we visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Oh, Lord, help us. Pure religion is being unspotted from the world. Let's not even let a spot of it get on us. And we struggle with more. More more is pushed at us than ever before. And we've got to be all constantly rechanging, refocusing our family habits, our personal habits, our marital habits, constantly. Constantly. We need to be readjusting. Cannot do that. Cannot let that happen. We've, we've let a bad habit creep in. Are, are you men sitting before me, man enough, to sit down with your wife, to sit down with your wife or your children and your children, and to say, we've been making a mistake. I've been too lax. I've been allowing this. It is unnecessary. It tends in this direction. It leads us towards sin. It creates a temptation. It's a spot. If we're going to be holy, I need to put that away. I need to mortify that. I need to pluck out that right eye. I need to cut off that right hand. I need to hack off that right foot. Because it would be better for our family to enter into life halt, maimed, and blind than to enter into hellfire with all of our members intact. Are you going to read that to us in the second service, Adam? Yes, you are. Mark chapter 9, it's a pretty horrible passage, isn't it? No wonder that three of those verses are out of the modern versions. Can you imagine which three verses are out? Where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. Spots they are in blemishes. We don't want any spots in our church. We don't want any blemishes in our church. These false teachers, in their disregard for authority, in their disregard for sexual temperance, are spots and blemishes. Help us, Heavenly Father. What are we supposed to do when we see someone in a mess or or, or compromising in the church? Yank them out of the fire! according to Jude one twenty three, Some show compassion, but others yank out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. That's what the Bible tells us, because our goal together as a church is to protect our church from spots and blemishes because we want to be a chaste virgin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches are accountable for those that commune with it because it can affect the whole church, as it did in Ai. Men died when Joshua went to take the city of Ai because Achan was a spot and a blemish on them. How about the warning to Corinth about a fornicator there in 1 Corinthians 5? And John to the churches of Asia about those like the, the, Jeze- the prophetess Jezebel in the church at Thyatira. She needed to have her mouth shut up. Lord help us. Look, Flip over one page to the chapter that's coming up next. This is such a wonderful conclusion. Concluding verse in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. Brethren, my beloved brethren, My dear brothers and sisters, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, and that is God burning up the heavens and the earth, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. There are sins of the heart. Bitterness, grudges, hatred, resentment, lack of forgiveness, lack of forbearance, in the word peace, and without spot, not letting the world even spot us or touch us, and without blame, not having any known sins, we've confessed them all and are standing before Him. And notice that word diligent again. Peter presses that a lot, doesn't he? That we're supposed to be putting a lot of effort into this fact. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings. It says in the latter part of verse 13, sporting themselves, it's all a big game to them, Religion is a is a religious game. Get in there and get that praise band cranking away. Jump around a little bit. Give him some little prosperity sermon, some little go- social gospel, some prosperity gospel sermonette, and uh, go ahead and live any way you want. Hit hit the circuit for uh, popular televangelists. Be on Larry King, who's no longer got his own show. Hit the other ones and just uh, sporting themselves. It's all a big game with their own deceivings. They preach and they practice the same thing, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Look at Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6. This is a passage that I did not use last Saturday evening because the sun was shining in the faces and eyes of some of you and melting you under your clothing. So I, I had mercy on you at our baptism. But this is one of the passages I wanted to share with you that Adam and I had shared together. We love Romans 5, don't we? Because in Romans 5, verses 6 through 11, it describes the atonement of Jesus Christ in several glorious terms. And it tells us in Romans 5, 12 through 19, the doctrine of representation of the second Adam, which is what we love. And then it concludes with verses 20 and 21 telling us that moreover the law entered, that's the law of Moses, that the offense might abound. That what Adam caused in our race will abound, because when you look at the law, we sin in so many different ways, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, killing even those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, over there in verse 14, even so might grace reign. That means grace is king through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What is a conclusion that some draw from that? It's verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If all I did was preach grace is king, Jesus just wants to forgive you. Jesus has forgiven you everything you've ever done, everything you are doing, everything you ever will do. Without teaching repentance, and repentance defined by the Bible, I am lying to you about grace. And so it's called turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. What does that mean? There's so much grace. The grace revolution taking place on the other side of the earth does not impress me. Because there isn't repentance taught like it should be. Right. And, and listen, I'd like to hear that one preach. I'm talking about Joseph Prince. I'd like to hear him preach on techno-sins. You want to talk about a technologically advanced society? It's the city in which his church exists. That's Singapore. I love grace being king. Grace is king in the lives of his elect in a legal way. But grace is king in the lives of His elect in a practical way when they repent and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put off all the works of the flesh. And those works of the flesh need to be defined and listed so that the people of God know what to put off. Lord, help us to that end. Shall we continue in sin? that grace may abound? I mean, since there's so much grace and grace is king and we're in a grace revolution that's been brought to us by these new teachers that have these new doctrines that are so wonderful, God forbid. Amen. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And it goes on to describe the role of baptism. When we're baptized, we're burying our old sinful selves to rise to walk in newness of life, not to take, try to take advantage of grace. Back to Second Peter chapter 2. Much more could be said about Joseph Prince and false grace, but I've already said it. Do you know the title of the sermon? True and False Grace. Type it into uh, the little magnifying glass at the top of our website and get a full-blown explanation of lascivious grace. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. God wants us to live holy lives. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that is true grace. The grace of God that is the apostolic gospel. It teaches us something. And it doesn't teach us to presume on grace. It teaches us a life of self-denial. You know, when we talk about a straitjacket, that is self-denial. Because you can't move like you want to move. Your movements are restricted. You mean I can't do that? There should be a whole long list in your life that you know you can't do. Because God doesn't want us to do them. There's a, throughout the New Testament, there are these lists of things that we're supposed to do and lists of things we're not supposed to do. And we're supposed to put on the new man with the new list and put off the old man and the old list. Lord, help us! The lack of doing that is the number one weakness that leads to being beguiled by these false teachers. It's being double-minded. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We do not want to be unstable because the unstable are beguiled. How do we save ourselves from being unstable and thus vulnerable to being beguiled? By having one mind. I am going to live a holy life. My family is going to live a holy life. Lord, help us to that end. Remind us of these things. Convict us of them. Push us. Help us right now to be convicted that we're thinking of going home and changing things. If things need to be changed. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation. This is the gospel of grace that truly converts men. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. Not just happily. We should live soberly. It's sober Christians that get to rejoice the most soberly, righteously, and godly, in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and so forth. And then in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee, because this gospel will be despised. Now remember that in verse 1, you had old men, then you had old women, then you had young women, then you had young men, then you had ministers, then you had servants or employees on the job. And there is a list given in these 15 short verses of things that God expects from every one and those things ought to be taught because that's what the grace of God really teaches. Back to Second Peter chapter 2. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings. What is their deceitfulness? Their deceitfulness is turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Their deceivings are that the pleasures of this world are greater than the pleasure of God, than the love of God, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Lord, save us. They practice and preach the same thing. So they're sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. They'll sit right among us at the Lord's table at feasts of charity. Wherever they can squeeze in, they'll sit there and they'll just be lascivious, their mind on carnal things, not on spiritual things, their mind on this world, not on the world to come, their, their thoughts on this life, not on eternal life. The plural use of the word, we have the word Feast here. Jude says they feast with you in your feasts of charity. That that terminology feast plural is never used in the Lord's Supper. The word feast singular is used once in First Corinthians chapter five about the Passover. But the, the 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 Passover wasn't a feast. The specific instructions of Paul were to eat at home so that when you come together, what condition were you to be in from a hunger standpoint? Not hungry. You're supposed to have eaten at home. So that is not this is a different kind of a feast. It's just very briefly mentioned here. It's also over in Jude chapter 1 and verse 12 about feasts of charity, which we understand to be large meals prepared by the church for the church where the poor brethren of the church are able to come in and have a great meal in brotherly love with the rest of the congregation covered by the church because it's called a feast of charity. That means somebody's paying for something that someone else is getting to have without paying for it because that's what charity is. It's not the Lord's Supper. Because you weren't supposed to feast at the Lord's Supper. It's called a feast only in the sense of the Passover Supper, the Passover meal, and that wasn't much of a feast anyway. It was only, there was a certain specified amount of a lamb for a household of a certain size and the unleavened bread that went with it. And so we have, they'll come in among us. Verse 14, they've got eyes full of adultery. You know, the Bible does teach that you can commit adultery with your eyes. Do you know that? Do you remember that? Jesus said, but whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. This has eyes full of adultery. So that's looking upon a woman with the intent, with the pleasure, with the fantasy, with the remembrance of bringing her back up when you need to for your fantasy of that woman. That's adultery of your heart. That's adultery of your eyes. Jesus condemned it. Jesus said it's a violation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Job said, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Marriage to me, Job said, is to make a covenant with mine eyes that I am not going to look at any other woman but my wife as the object of my sexual desires and pleasure. Why then should I think upon a maid? That's what Job said. I have made a covenant with mine. When I got married, I made a covenant. I am no longer going to look at any other woman. I'm only going to look at my woman. Why should I even think upon a maid? And he had lots of maids working for him. And those maids would have been younger and, uh, of course, more attractive at times than his wife, but he'd already made a covenant with his eyes. And look, in Proverbs chapter 6 says, "...lest not after her beauty in thine heart, and let not her take thee with her eyelids." So you're looking at her, she's looking at you, and you know those exchanges between two sets of eyes can be very passionate, very moving, and very powerful. And so we don't even do it. Solomon warned his son not to. And so we have here, what what about these false teachers? They have eyes full of adultery. They're constantly given over to not ruling their spirits, not ruling their hearts, not ruling their eyes. And never before... Are we faced with so many women to look at, poorly dressed, as our generation? But if we're going to preserve our church, preserve our families, preserve our souls, preserve our relationship with the Lord, we have to be the opposite of this. Having eyes without adultery. That we only look upon women as our sisters. That we want to help them, serve them, befriend them. That they're virtuous and we want to protect them that way having eyes full of adultery. These men and women walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Now see here at 14, he's, co- he's going back and going after those two categories of sins these false teachers are primarily known for in this context. We took care of rebellion against civil government. Now it's going after sexual sins again. A little more specifically, they're just given over to any good looking woman they crane their heads and look at and lust after her. And we want to do the opposite. My wife is the only one I'm going to look at. Therefore, we need to cut off some of the avenues of bringing pictures and moving pictures into our houses of other women. When did that occur before? You know, now it's right here. Lord help us. Heavenly Father. Remember the generation in which we live and strengthen us with all might according to your divine power in the inner man that we will rule our eyes and our thoughts just like Job did. We can do it. He's given us all things that pertain into life and godliness by His divine power. He's given us exceeding great and precious promises. Do you know what He meant when He said that? He meant this. I will say to you Well done, thou good and faithful servant, if you will not look or think about other women. Okay, does that help? Exceeding great and precious promises. I will say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, if you will not look and think about other women. That's an exceeding great and precious promise. If you have a problem, men, Look at your company that you're in in this passage of Scripture and their future. That's an exceeding bad and terrible promise of what's going to happen to these men and run to Christ and your spouse. There is no better moment in life in this world, and and please understand me, than having all of your sins confessed being totally convinced and convicted of holiness and holding your wife. Now, if the truth be told, and we don't want to hurt any of their feelings, we don't really need her to have that relationship with the Lord. But when you've got both, and all of you men sitting in here with converted wives, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. To be at one with the Lord and to know that all of your sins are confessed and you are pursuing righteousness and to hold your woman who is all yours and who loves you and is loyal to you, it doesn't get any better than that. And do you know why you're not experiencing God's riches for your life? Because you're stupid. Because I'm stupid. Because any of us are stupid and we don't do it God's way. Right. Your wife is prettier than she needs to be. Your wife is more loyal than she needs to be. Your wife is more than you can ever handle if you knew how to handle one. Your wife is more than enough. You say, is this really what Peter had in mind in 2 Peter 2 and verse 14? I said we were going to apply it to us instead of me getting up here and railing on Joel Osteen. We're going to apply it to us. And so we've got the... Listen, when I look at that having eyes full of adultery. That should condemn every single man for every time he lapses and thinks about another woman. Every time he brings it back up to his memory. I want you to remember Job. I have made a covenant with mine eyes when I got married. Why then should I think upon a maid? He blew out all fantasies. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. Proverbs 24 and verse 9. Solomon would warn his son, Don't lust after her beauty. Don't let her take you with her eyelids. Don't you have a look like that with another woman. And Jesus would say, you've broken the seventh commandment. Men, if we're going to preserve our... This is talking about church preservation right here. This whole chapter is about church preservation because of the false teachers that are going to come in. And in both chapters 1 and chapters 3, we're exhorted not to fall away from our own steadfastness. And one of the things that are brought, remember, there's two categories of sins. And we, we've, we've tried to be faithful to both of, to work both of them over. The two categories of sin are rebellion against civil authority and sexual lasciviousness. Not ruling your thoughts. It does not matter if you are not out on the streets fornicating. If you're fornicating in your mind, you're just as guilty before God. It doesn't matter to Him. Because he knows it's just your timidity that has kept you from the outward act. Not your righteousness. Because you would if you could. But you can't because you're you're chicken. Or whatever the case might be. Brethren, we want to start... Right here, having eyes full of adultery. Notice, it doesn't say having beds full of adultery. It doesn't say having chambers full of adultery. It doesn't say having bedrooms full of adultery. It says having eyes full of adultery. And we've got more thrown into our eyes today than ever before. Lord, save us. Having eyes full of adultery. And that cannot cease from sin. That's why I said, brothers, if you have a problem, look at your company and future by this context and be frightened. The lion hath roared, who shall not fear? And run to Christ and your spouse. Get right with the Lord. It is so easy to get right with the Lord. Drop down on your knees and confess your sins and make changes in any part of your life that is leading you towards sin. Get with your wife and tell her what's been wrong in your house. And embrace her. Like Proverbs chapter 5 would say, you know, let her breath satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. You can do it. He's given you by divine power all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You know that when we went through the part on civil rebellion, I worked it over pretty thoroughly. Well, now I've got this part. I want to be just as thorough, to be fair and honest with God's Word. And you know, we can we can say, Lord, thank you for saving me from my former rebellious, disrespectful attitude towards civil government while we allow fantasies to run about sex with someone else that we're not married to. This powerful lust, if it's unchecked by the Spirit of God, and your diligence will consume you according to the last few verses of Proverbs chapter 5 you know it is one thing like david to repent of adultery but another to live in lust you can you can think about you can you can choose to think about whatever you want to think about because god's given you the power to do so it is a choice and i'm going to tell you while you're in sin and you think i'm not going to allow sinful lusts anymore i'm only going to think about heaven and spiritual things and the lord jesus christ from a vantage point of sin there is no power or delight or pleasure or persuasion in that, to do, to make that leap. So you say, well, how do you get started then? Because that's where I'm at. I'm over here in, I've been allowing way too many sinful, lascivious thoughts. How do I, how do I get, get down on your knees and confess your sins and beg God for mercy? And He will give you the energy and the strength while you're confessing and forsaking. And if you have something that you can go cut off in your life, something that you can burn up, something that you can change, God will bless you even more with the strength to be able to do what you're committing to do. Of course, when you're in the flesh, flesh is a deceiver. Sin is a deceiver. It tells you, you'll be so bored over there. But you've got to get over there and try it and look back before you listen to that lie. Because once you get over there and look back, it's the only way to live. To be living righteously and boldly and with and for your wife only and not thinking of any other sinful thought. To be clean of all sins before God as far as you know in the light of His Word. And to have your wife is as good as it gets. And it's a wonderful way to live. Don't cheat yourself. But that doesn't really matter to me. Go ahead and cheat yourself. Just don't cheat the Lord Jesus Christ because we are supposed to be a chaste virgin without spot and without blemish. And one of the blemishes we can get is to have our eyes full of adultery like these false teachers, and they cannot cease from sin because they haven't been born again. And we have been born again, and we can cease from sin. self examinations the key. I want to know when you hear a sermon like right now, are you pricked in your heart or are you cut to your heart? If you're cut to your heart, either repent or get out. We don't need you. We don't want you. The Lord doesn't need you for sure, and He doesn't want you either. When you hear the Word of God like this coming to you, do you hear the lion roar, and does it prick your heart? I should do better. I must do better, Lord. I will change such and such in my life. Don't let it cut you to the heart and resent me. I'm just bringing words that say, having eyes full of adultery. Our nation lives on eyes full of adultery. They want to shove it at you every single second. Every channel that they can get their hands on. Everywhere they want to shove it at you. They want your eyes full of adultery. And there are too many pastors allowing it to happen. I haven't got off the subject. It's the subject shoved at us. I hope that I'm as faithful with verses 10 through 12 as I am with verse 14 for those two classes of sins that affect us. Instead of focusing off on, you know, Apostle Ron Carpenter at the World Redemption Center or Perry Noble down at New Spring or Joel Osteen, let's focus on us. You can cease from sin. You can make a change right now to make your wife the most beautiful woman you know. The most satisfying woman you know. The most pleasant companion to be with that you know. You can make a decision right now if you will make that decision before God to repent of any sin in this sexual part of your life where you've had eyes or mind playing with sinful thoughts, if you will confess your sins and come clean before the Lord, if you will add to that any changes that you need to make in how you use the internet, what you watch on television, where you go, who you talk to, the things that you know you need to make changes in, your wife will be beautiful to you. Go and invest in her. Go and invest in her and do the first works toward her like you did when you first met her. She will light you up. Every one of you in here can, should do that. You know, I try to get as personal and as specific and as practical as I can about civil government. I want to be as personal and specific and as practical as I can be about verse 14. Divine power has given you the ability to do it. One last point. The conviction. The conviction that comes from God's Word, and I hope some are convicted right now, that conviction that comes from God's Word that is leading you, that is pushing you, that is prompting you, that is softening you to want to repent of any sins is a Special gift from God. Do not refuse it. It will be less next time. It will be less next time until, as we're going to read in this chapter, you can become entangled again in what you were baptized and converted out of and overcome. Did Solomon get overcome? How did it start? One woman that he didn't have a right to. That conviction. Listen, my brothers, and it applies as much to women, but I'm, I'm going after my brothers. Brothers, that little bit of conviction that's push, nudging you just a little bit, thank God for it and do something with it as you do something with it, by the grace of God, He'll give you more energy and strength for it and more divine power to make the changes that you need to in your life to get back so that these verses do not apply to us. If these verses apply to us, even to one member in here, or to several, it exposes our church to the dangers that will not give us another 35 years. The Lord has led us so far and so high, but we don't even want to think about that. As I have shared verses with you recently and repeatedly from Philippians chapter 3, we want to forget those things which are behind and press forward to finish our race. And right now, let's go after the things that tempt us. There are two classes of sins here, and we're going after the second one for a few minutes in this sermon right now. May the Lord bless each of you that are convicted to humble yourself before God to examine yourself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me and my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.